All right. Well, good morning. If you're new, welcome to Citadel Square. My name's Steve, one of the pastors here. If you got a Bible, why don't you grab it and find Luke with me? Uh, Luke uh, chapter 10 is where we're going to be. Luke chapter 10, verses 17 to 24. Uh, last week, we took a look at Jesus commissioning a new group of people, the uh, 72 disciples that were sent out ahead of Jesus to every place that he was going to go. And we saw Jesus explain to these disciples uh, what they were called to do. We had requirements for ministry. We had uh, these disciples who had to be prayed up, who had to be willing, who had to execute ministry in Jesus' name according to some really rigorous uh, pastoral and character qualifications. They had to be dependent. They had to be uh, willing. They had to be uh, resting upon the fact that God would be providing for them through the generosity of people who would extend their, ho- extend their generosity, open their homes to them, and provide for them as they were preaching and teaching in Jesus' name. Now, if you look at Luke 10 with me, are you all there, Luke 10? All right, Luke 10, verse 17. You'll, you'll take a look that this text begins with the heading that the 72 return. And we said when we started this book way back in 1989 that Luke is a data guy. He's very particular about the pieces of information that he puts together. And here is where I'm a little bit disappointed in Luke. Because after all of this uh, preparation that Jesus puts these disciples through about what they're going to face, what they're going to experience, how they're going to face rejection, at the same time there will be people who respond to their message, Luke gives us nothing about their entire experience. Isn't that disappointing? I know nothing about what they did. We get very scant details on what we're going to see today in what Jesus, in what these disciples come back and they give a report. They give a one verse report of everything that happened in their ministry. So what we have here today, if last week was the pregame, we totally skipped the Super Bowl and we go into the postgame. Because now Jesus is going to debrief with these disciples and talk about their experience. This passage here this morning is a passage that is filled with big God theology. It's Jesus doing something that only one time in all of the scriptures he does. You know what it is? Three times we're told that Jesus weeps. Only one time in all of the gospels are we told that Jesus rejoices and it's right here. So What causes Jesus to explode with thanksgiving and joy to God? How does Jesus look back on the ministry of these disciples as they return? And how does Jesus interpret what's been going on? Now, you may have thought last week with these disciples who were getting ready to to go out with with one pair of sandals and uh, no money and totally dependent upon Jesus to provide for them. They were lambs among among wolves. You might expect them to come back and um, be kind of just beaten up, exhausted, worn out from the story. But that's not what we find in this passage. And what Jesus does, and I I hope that you discover this, what Jesus does is look back on the history of their ministry, on their experience of obedience and faithfulness to him, and he interprets it. Have you ever found that when you walk with Jesus, you very rarely get an explanation of what is to come? But then after years, five, ten years, you look back on faithfulness with Jesus and you start to go, oh man, God provided there. He, he showed up here. He 
he brought a key person into my life at this time, that I didn't get the job that I needed here, and that was for God's good pleasure and his good purposes in my life. Have you seen that before in your life? Well, what Jesus is going to do is give you retrospect on their ministry. And when he gives retrospect on their ministry, Jesus and this entire passage is going to be filled with joy. Everybody's going to be thrilled. Everybody's rejoicing. Everybody's praising God. Everybody is blessed. There's, this is not a sad text. So, like, stand up and high-five your neighbor. This is going to be all good news from Jesus' perspective, okay? So let's pray and see what Jesus wants to teach us here. Father, for these few minutes as we look into your word, we pray that uh, you would show us what you're doing in our lives, just as a result of what Jesus says to these disciples. I know there are many in this room who, over the past seven days between last week and this week, have sought to be faithful to you, who have maybe had hard conversations, who are facing difficult circumstances, who are taking a stand for you in their family or among their friends or in their workplace or on their campus. And maybe even there are some who come in here today and have been rejected as a result of being faithful to you. We pray that this text would give us boldness and courage, would uh, stoke the fires of joy in our heart. That we would leave here today with a deep-seated awareness of who you are and what you're doing as a result of the person and work of Jesus. And as we strive to obey you, would you confirm our steps as a result of this text? Would you give us great courage and resilience and focus and perseverance to be the men and the women that you want for us to be in all these contexts that you would send us? So, Father, may our theology this morning be deepened and broadened. May we gain greater confidence in who you are and what you have done. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Luke chapter 10, verse 17. Y'all there? Now there, here we go. Luke 10, 17. The 72 returned with joy. Now, that's a great report, isn't it? Like I said, the, the disciples could have come back and go, we were rejected, we were run out of town, we were almost stoned. We could have had all sorts of stuff happen in the course of this ministry of the 72. But these disciples come back and they are filled with joy. And right from the beginning, let me, just, let me just say this that I think is a very personal and relevant application to your Christian life as you walk with Jesus. That joy comes as a result of being obedient to Jesus. Okay, I, I don't know where your perspective is this morning. Maybe your perspective on obedience to Jesus is it's duty. I ought to. I come to church, I sing the songs, I know the truths, I can recite the gospel, but really... My Christian experience and my obedience to Christ is just drudgery. I kind of feel like I'm just dragging myself through my Christian life. And I think this text is here, at least in part, for us to think back to what we saw last week. Now, last week, we had a group of 72 disciples who were particularly called by Jesus, right? We had a group of 72 disciples who were told that they were to go out being completely dependent like lambs among wolves recklessly dependent upon the provision of the shepherd and the provision of the people who would accept their ministry. These disciples were appointed, were called, had character that they were supposed to walk by. They weren't allowed to take more than what was needed. They weren't allowed to take advantage of God's people as they shared the gospel with them. And they knew as they were getting ready to go into ministry that they would even experience rejection and persecution as a result of this message. 
but they were living on the razor's edge of obedience to Jesus. Where they couldn't rest in their knowledge, their background, their ability, their provision. They were totally dependent on God. And as a result of that dependence on God and Christ and his purposes, what followed? Well, what followed is joy. So at least from the beginning here in this story, we can see that faithful obedience to Jesus is guaranteed to produce and stoke joy in our hearts. Is that good news for you? Maybe you haven't, I don't, you know, a lot of times in the church, we talk about the ways that you can serve in the body. And we don't do that just because we have to, and we're pastors, and we're trying to guilt you into doing things. And I know you're, you're bored sometimes with us asking you to do stuff, and you go, oh, I just don't want to. I'm not that interested. I just want to do my thing and get through my day. And look, I get that, but let me tell you that for you to really and truly experience joy in your Christian life, it is going to have to come as a result of sacrificial, Jesus-honoring obedience. There isn't any other connection. So for Jesus to say, depend on me, risk on me, speak in my name, perhaps be rejected, definitely be accepted sometimes is Jesus' invitation for you to experience deep and lasting spiritual joy. This is the anchor of the Christian faith. Is that you can know by your obedience to Jesus, his pleasure. You can know that you are giving your life in those times when you are disciplining yourself to walk in faithfulness with your spouse, with your kids, at, at your job, in your family, in the workplace, with your, all of those places. When you are disciplining yourself to walk with Jesus, Jesus guarantees spiritual joy. Good news, right? Jesus doesn't expect us to be faithful to him and just, be, and just have this drudgery experience. So these disciples, were they dependent? They were. Were they faith-filled? They were. Were they obedient to what Jesus has said? They do. They uh, did. Word. They word. <laughs> and here they are. They come back filled with joy. This is why a lot of times in our church, when you talk to people who take a risk and are faithful to God, when you talk to people who go on short-term mission trips, when you talk to people who start to give themselves to other people, often what you will hear in the church, in, in Christians of all ages, stages, sizes, is that I received way more than I gave. Amen? That we recognize when we are ministering Jesus' name, when it costs us to be in relationship with someone else, to bear with another brother or sister in love, to restore them in a spiritual, uh, spirit of gentleness, that we get an affirmation, we get more back from that experience than we gave because God joins us in our acts of faithfulness. So here the 72 return and they're filled with joy. Jesus, can you believe it? Now watch why they're filled with joy. This is incredible. The 72 return with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, that's a pretty incredible, I mean, I've never cast out a demon, as far as I know. I've taught lots of classes. I've preached for a while. But as far as I know, I've never cast out a demon. And the, the disciples, it seems, by this statement, weren't even prepared for this. What were they prepared for last week? Do you know? They were prepared to be rejected. 
They were prepared to have their three square meals met. They were even prepared for healings. Because Jesus said, go, preach, heal, and tell people the kingdom of God is drawn near. This blows their mind. That they go out in faithfulness to Jesus and the spiritual forces of darkness bow in their presence. Imagine this for you. You go out on Monday morning and you are so spiritually sensitive that you can see the demonic presence that is happening at, where do you go to eat? You go to Hardee's. There you are at Hardee's, and you are to why Hardee's? <laughs> you are completely spiritually tuned in and aware of the spiritual forces of darkness that exist at Hardee's. They're gonna, they're gonna take this message down. <laughs> and you pray, and demons bow. Is that? Could you get a better ministry report than that? Isn't that incredible? Anybody ever done that? Every, like, these disciples come back and they're floored. It's all, they're almost stunned that it works, aren't they? They go, oh man, we prayed and things happened. I didn't know that. We preached and things happened. People got saved. People responded. The demons fled. Physical sickness left. This is incredible. So they come back and these people are charged up. Look at what Jesus says in verse 18. Now what Jesus is going to say is he's going to interpret their experience for them. Look at what he says, verse 18. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now commentators aren't exactly sure on why Jesus says this. It's probably, some people think that Jesus sees the forecasting of, Jesus, of Satan's falling. Some people think that Jesus has a vision and invites the 72 disciples into seeing the vision that he sees. I think it's probably best in context for us to what you have in verses, uh, verse 17 is the disciples' experience, right? Here's what ministry looks like to us. And now Jesus talks to them and goes, let me, show you, let me tell you what ministry looks like to me. So here's what ministry looks like to Jesus when disciples who are dependent and faithful, preaching in his name, doing his will, going out according to the requirements that he has set forth for them, being rejected by some, being accepted by others. Here's what Jesus says ministry is like. Ministry is like the falling of Satan. This is the first mention of Satan in the book of Luke. Do you know that? It's the first, and it's interesting that in the context of Jesus handing his ministry to others, that he now interprets the ministry of other people who are faithful to him and doing ministry in his name as confronting the arch nemesis of the kingdom of God. He brings up the fact that you aren't just doing ministry to people who have physical ailments. You're not just doing ministry to people who don't understand the things of Jesus. You're not just reorganizing their theological perspectives. You are doing battle for the hearts of people face to face and toe to toe with the spiritual forces of darkness led by Satan himself. Now, when Jesus says this, all throughout the Old Testament, there's uh, plenty of scriptures in the Old and New Testament that talk about the activity of Satan. In the Old Testament, you have the book of Job where Satan comes before God and presents himself before God and says, have you considered my servant, or God says, have you considered my servant Job? And the whole book of Job is this tension between will Job obey God in light of, of massive amounts of suffering? Satan bets no, God bets yes, by the end Job comes through. 
You have other spots in the Bible, in the Old Testament, where the demons array themselves and come before God, and God chooses to have a king fall, and a demon says, I've got an idea. God says, go, you'll succeed. That's how the king is going to fall. When you come into the New Testament, Peter, in 1 Peter 5, says, our, our adversary... The devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. But in the context of Jesus' ministry, when Jesus says, I am watching Satan fall like lightning from heaven, he's taking an image for us. And the image is not lightning and its brightness. The image is the swiftness of lightning falling. Now, lightning falls like that, right? It's a flash. It's quick. It's brief. It's gone. And Jesus is saying, in the presence of these 72 who are doing ministry in my name, that's how fast Satan falls in the presence of Jesus and his kingdom. In fact, if you want to read this later, you can go read this later. Read Revelation chapter 12. In Revelation chapter 12, great war arises in heaven and, and um, Michael and his angels press the, the Satan and his demons out of heaven and he comes down to earth. And all of heaven rejoices that no longer is there an adversary and an accuser in heaven. His mouth is shut and his time, it says, is short. And Jesus says, in my ministry, when you are doing ministry in my name, boom, that's how fast spiritual forces of darkness fall. Now, look at verse 19. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions. Probably a, a literary way to talk about all of the opposition that these disciples would face. Any spiritual opposition whatsoever, I have given you authority to tread on them. They go under your feet and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Now don't take this literally because once Luke writes the book of Acts, can Stephen get stoned? Say yes. Yeah, can James be killed by the sword? Yeah, he can, right? But for a brief moment, we see the invincibility of the disciples who are doing ministry in Jesus' name. And they are watching the spiritual forces of darkness fall. They are watching physical uh, infirmities fall. They are watching people get spiritually uh, and physically restored. And Jesus says, you have the very authority of heaven to do these things. Now, that's a pretty good post-game so far, right? We get a, this is pretty impressive. Now the disciples are going, we didn't just preach with one pair of sandals and get a few square meals. Jesus is giving us eyes to see what is really going on in ministry. And I don't know, it, maybe you're like me in this. I have a way of shrinking ministry and what God is doing down to my own personal day-by-day -day moment experience. Do you do that? Where I, I ask questions where I go, I have no idea what God po could possibly be doing in this scenario. I have no idea. I'm frustrated. I'm bitter. I'm dealing with sin. I, I can't see the end from the beginning. I don't know the pathway that God has led me on. I'm really not sure what he's doing. I know he's up there somewhere involved, but when Jesus gives the post game to these disciples, you've got to think that their eyes start getting bigger and bigger and bigger. I just thought we were healing. I just thought we were preaching. I just thought we just cast out a demon. And Jesus, no. Jesus compresses their ministry into kingdom of darkness, kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God is dominating. Now, you could end the text and go home and all the disciples would be uh, thrilled, right? But I want you to see that this isn't enough 
of an explanation of the ministry. It's insufficient merely to define what these disciples have been doing. And in fact, what Jesus does now uh, in these next two verses is give them, or the next one verse, is give them an understanding of something that should cause them to have greater joy than they have in the ministry success they've experienced. Look at verse 20. Nevertheless, now, you don't need to look back, but from last week, nevertheless was used in the context of people rejecting the kingdom of God. Remember that? They reject the kingdom of God, and Jesus says to them, nevertheless, the kingdom of God has come near. So it's, it's, a, it's a contrast, right? It's a contrast to the reject. So on, on one hand, last week, the disciples get rejected. Nevertheless, the kingdom is here. Now, Jesus says something interesting here, because he just said, you had incredible ministry success, right? Amen? powerful ministry influence, demons falling, people getting healed, gospel getting preached. This is incredible. Now, it's another contrast word. But this contrast isn't negative and positive. This contrast is positive, positive. It's good, better. Look. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this. What? Don't rejoice in perhaps the most significant ministry opportunity and experience we've ever had? No. Don't rejoice in this. Now, on one hand, it's good for us to rejoice in the fact that God uses us. God uh, responds to our, our acts of faithfulness. It's good to experience the pleasure of God as we obey the things that we know we ought to obey. But there's a deeper and more important joy that ought to control the life of the believer. There's something else that, that backs up and that is the greater foundation of our ministry experience and our walk with God. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now that's, that's interesting. Now let me tell you why that's interesting, just in the flow of chapter 10. Last week, be faithful, go out dependent. Rest on the fact that I will provide for your needs. And the people who open their homes to you in generosity and in responsiveness to the gospel message are evidence of the fact that I'm with you and that I will provide for you and I see you. But there will be people who reject you and refuse you. People who want nothing to do with who you are. People who reject this message, whose you will have to respond by dusting off the, t the dust of that town in their streets and saying the kingdom of God has come near. So last week, you're going to find massive rejection when you go out and do ministry in my name. And one of the things we said last week is that ministry for us can a lot of times feel very personal because when people reject the fact that we are longing for them to know and understand Christ, when we lay before them the hope that they can have by uh, receiving the forgiveness that is in Jesus' name, we can get rejected and we can take it personal. And Jesus said and closes last week, they don't reject you, they reject who? They reject me. But this week, we have massive success. They go out and they have the greatest ministry success that they have ever imagined. Which means that in both failure and in success, we have a deeper joy. There's a deeper truth. See, a lot of times, because I have a hard time seeing what God is doing in the, the broad scope of my life and getting a perspective, a lot of times I can constantly like tally up the losses. Can you do that? 
right? I don't have the money I want, don't have the success I want, don't have the influence I want, don't have the reputation I want, don't have the girl or the guy that I want, don't have the stage of life that I want, lost, 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 lost. What's God doing? But what Jesus introduces us to here is even if I have all the wins, and I go, people always respond to the gospel. When I serve, people get blessed. When I serve, I get reputation and accolades and affirmation. When I serve, my esteem of myself goes up. When I'm faithful to God, I feel really good about myself. Jesus obliterates all of those categories and said there's something far more lasting, far more secure, far more certain than ministry success and ups and downs, right? You ever tie your life, your state of being, your identity to how you're doing in certain areas of life? Anybody else ever do that but me? Just only pastors do that? Right, we all do that. And Jesus says there's a more, there's a deeper security that should be the root of your joy. What is it? You should rejoice that your name is written in heaven. You should rejoice that you are known and loved and secure and what Ephesians called is seated with Christ in the heavenly places. That should give you such a foundation of acceptance and intimacy with God than any other ministry victory you have. Isn't this an interesting text for us to go to two services on? To go look at the growth that God is giving to Citadel Square. People are coming and people are getting blessed. People are getting encouraged. And it's almost as if Jesus goes, let me take the mic. Don't rejoice in this. Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. I know your name. Now what we're introduced to here as Jesus, it's kind of a mild rebuke, right? Jesus is a little disappointing. Where we were like, yay! And he's like, don't rejoice in that. I go, oh. <laughs> rejoice that your name is written in heaven. What we're invited to in the next two verses is an intra-Trinitarian conversation. Well, I'm not even sure if in this passage the disciples hear this or maybe Luke inserts it. But Luke gives Jesus and the Father and the Spirit's conversation about these things. In the context of these disciples coming back and uh, rejoicing and experiencing the kingdom of God going forth as a result of their dependent obedience on what Jesus has said and what he calls them to do, now the Trinity has a conversation. The Trinity shares what it thinks about this experience. Look at verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit, in a sense, was the source and the amen of what Jesus is about to say. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. Two terms for God that Jesus gives you right here that give you both total sovereign authority and absolute confidence in relationship and intimacy. Do you see them both? Jesus has them both. He's my heavenly Father. I'm accepted and loved and sure of his confidence in me, and he is the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He has all sovereignty, all authority, all power in every place at every time in every ministry situation. Those pretty important for our Christian lives? That we have both intimacy and authority. Relationship and sovereignty. They both work together. Here's why I'm thanking you. Here's why Jesus is rejoicing. What causes Jesus great joy? Here it is. That you've hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Now, what are the these things that Jesus is talking about? Well, as far as we can tell, it's been the preaching of the gospel. It's been the ministry of Jesus Christ. It's been the healing and the uh, teaching that Jesus has done. It's really the whole scope of Jesus' ministry that he's now handing to this next generation of disciples. 
Even more so than that, it's been the confidence that these disciples are now invited into the fact that they recognize our names are written in heaven. They're aware of the fact that this kingdom of God that is going forth in the preaching of Jesus' name is confronting and obliterating the kingdom of Satan. So all of these realities of Jesus, uh, his life, his ministry, their faithfulness, their preaching, the kingdom of Satan falling, their security in heaven, their massive ministerial joy. Jesus is thrilled at this. And that these things have been revealed not, I'm sorry, look what it says. You've hidden these things from the wise and understanding. Nobody who's come to, this, to Jesus at this point in this book has been necessarily all that impressive in the world's eyes, right? He's faced opposition, but Jesus and Luke is constantly reaching to people who have zero influence. People who are stuck in their sin and oppressed by their guilt and uh, disappointed in where they've gone and they have a track record of failure. And it says that Jesus, through God and what he's doing in these disciples, hides these things from the wise and the understanding. While at the very same time, he's revealing them to little children. If you thought being a lamb was a little bit discouraging last week, he calls you a baby. Why do we read Psalm 8? Out of the mouths of infants and babes have you ordained praise. To remind you of the fact that what has happened when you have come to understand who Jesus is is that God has pulled back the covers. You know how that's what, that's what um, revealed means? It means to pull the covers back. God showed you Christ. You didn't find him. He wasn't lost. He found you. He revealed something to you about who he is. He revealed Christ to you as the object and the hope of your salvation. While at the very same time concealing it from those who are wise and understanding in this world. This is why the gospel message is not popular on the evening news. This is why it doesn't make the front page of the New York Times. It's a quiet, simple, certain work of God that God chooses to unfold and to reveal. Here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Where's the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now watch what he says to the Corinthian church. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. What if salvation really came to the people who had it all together? What if salvation really was God revealing himself to the best men and women the world had to offer? Well, then the gospel message would, all, would be essentially about how much you can accomplish, how much you could get it together, 
And then if you could get your life together and you could get multiple degrees and you could have 5% body fat and you could accomplish what you wanted to in your line of work, then God would go, those are the people that I love, the impressive ones. But that's not how the gospel works. The gospel takes the world system and it totally inverts it. Because what has Jesus been doing? He's been inviting the people who are outsiders. He's been inviting the unpopular. He's been inviting the kids. He's inviting kids in, in Jesus' time had zero reputation. Zero. They were totally worthless in people's eyes. And Jesus is thrilled with the fact that God is revealing himself to people who don't deserve him, don't seek for him, don't want him, and who have terrible track records. Is that good news, church? Amen. That's great news. And it fills Jesus with joy. Look at verse 22. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Now watch this. I want you to watch what Jesus does. Jesus connects authority and um, relationship together. Watch. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows. Look at that. No one knows, right? It's a relational term. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. The Father and the Son have a unique kind of relationship. Total intimacy and awareness of one another. Jesus says, I always do what is pleasing to the Father. Jesus says to Thomas, if you've seen me, you've seen the, the Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. Which means the keyhole. The singular place where you can have accurate information about God is not in any other spiritual leader and teacher in this world except for Jesus Christ. If you want to know God, the only person who can tell you about God is Jesus. Jesus has absolute authority given from heaven and he connects it to the fact that me and my father have an intimate knowledge of one another. Father, Lord of heaven and earth has sovereignty. The Son has been given all things handed to him by the Father, which means he has sovereignty. And his authority is for to a particular end. This is why Jesus is filled with joy. His authority in the context, who the Father is except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal to him. Did you see what Jesus just said? All things in heaven and earth are given to me, and the best that I can give to you, you babies... You people who are foolish and unaware and uh, despised by the world, the best that I can give you is the personal relationship I have with my Heavenly Father. The intimacy that Jesus has with God his Father is now given to his people. Is that incredible? That is incredible. Does God give us the best? Yes, he gives us himself. He gives us a personal, intimate, names written in heaven relationship. Do you see why now ministry victory starts to fade into the background? As what eclipses it is the fact that Jesus now reveals to us and gives to us the very relationship that he has with his heavenly father. I don't have time to go here. Go to John chapter 1 and watch what John does. Let's go there. Who cares? <laughs> go turn to John 1. Real quick, I want to show you revelation and relationship together in John's writing. Here's what John does. And you're going to watch John do the same thing that Jesus just did here. Several commentators say that Luke's passage here is very John-like in the way that he writes. Look at John chapter 1, verse 9. John 1. 
Verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become what? Children of God. What's that? That's relationship. Your names are written in heaven. You are known and loved and called by God himself. Watch what John does. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. There's relationship with God available in Jesus. Now watch this. What John goes to next is revelation. It's knowledge of God. Look at verse 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Verse 16, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. What was the law? The great revelation and knowledge of God. But grace and truth comes through Jesus. Verse 18, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So we have, go back to Luke, revelation and relationship. What's the goal of Jesus? The goal of Jesus is to reveal to you the Heavenly Father. The goal of Jesus is to give you right relationship and right standing with your Heavenly Father. So what should I rejoice in? Ministry that goes up and down, rejected, accepted, rejected, accepted, rejected, accepted. No, I should rejoice in the fact that Jesus has won for me a right standing before God in heaven. That I am so secure that nothing that this world attempts to take away from me will affect my status in heaven. And there's no success I can have in this world that is any better than having my name written down in heaven. Amen? Verse 23. You back in Luke? Wind it up, Jesus. Verse 23. Then turning his disciples, he said privately. Jesus stops this joy-filled, thanksgiving tirade, and now he turns to the disciples. And, he, and it's as if Jesus takes their hands, and he looks them in the eye, and he uses eight different verbs that all have to do with personal experience. Because when Jesus turns to them and looks at them, he now has to interpret their experience, right? He's been doing this all throughout the passage. He's given them big God theology by which they can understand their experience. And he closes by saying this in verse 23. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. Now that's not a, um, what's the word? It's, um, we've seen the word blessed just a few times in the book, right? Remember when Jesus kind of gives his version of the Sermon on the Mount in Luke, and he, he says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, right? Blessed are you who are hungry now, for yours you'll be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. Blessed were you when people hate you, and when they exclude you, and revile you, and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. But now, on the heels of all of this ministry success that these people have experienced, Jesus says, your eyes are blessed to see what you see. Look at verse 24. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and didn't see it. There may be a hint here, just of what Jesus has said, of concealing it from the wise and understanding. That could be a historical reality, that the best Old Testament prophet longed to see the day of Jesus. That the greatest Old Testament king 
longed for the time when God would fulfill his promise to send the Messiah. And now here among these nameless and faceless disciples who aren't all that impressive, they get a front row seat to knowing and experiencing the work of the Messiah right in front of them. Many people, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So, guys, we need this kind of, you're, you know, at some point we're going to get to the end of our lives and we're going to look back on what our lives have been. We're going to look back on the times that we took a stand for Christ and we were faithful to him and we, we wondered what he was doing, but we held fast and we persevered in the, in the day of suffering. And this text is helpful for us because it explains not just the life of the 72, but it explains really all of our lives. So as, we, as you look back on your Christian life, as you look back over the years, as you look back from where you are now, whether you're 70 or 17, what Jesus gives is an explanation and an understanding of what is really happening when you risk and obey what Jesus tells you to do. See, everything that the disciples learn here comes after their willingness to obey, right? right? They don't get it before they leave. They don't go, hey, don't worry about it. We're going to cast down Satan. Don't worry about it. You're gonna, your name's going to get written in heaven. Don't worry about it. All of the, the goodness of God and the joy of Jesus and the, the, the goodwill of the Father to send Christ for us is understood in retrospect. It's understood in the past. Which means for us, on February, what's today, 4th? February 4th, 2024, you have acts of faithfulness still in the future to do. Amen? We have ways that we need to walk out our Christian faith still ahead of us. And this text gives us at least four truths, I think, that are helpful for us. Because listen, obedience is hard. Amen? Like being faithful is hard. There are ways that we have to die to self and, and we misunderstand our circumstances and we say the wrong things and we have to apologize and we have to repent and we have to struggle to rise again and be faithful to Jesus in this new day. But at least four things that I think are in this passage that are helpful for us to understand. Because it's hard to pray, it's hard to be faithful, it's hard to obey, it's hard to face rejection. But number one, when we choose the path of obedience to Jesus... As far as this text is concerned, there's joy. Is it hard? Yeah. Is there joy? There is. Because we align our life to the very kingdom of God that is being preached and that is going forth, that we align ourselves to what God is doing in the church against that uh, the gates of hell will not prevail against. There's true spiritual, you have no idea the spiritual joy that is a result of your willingness to just serve in Jesus' name. You have no idea how God is going to answer that prayer. You have no idea that on the other side of that simple act of faithfulness, how he will meet you with his joy, confirming your steps and encouraging you. Number two, there's assurance, isn't there? In our willingness to obey, one of the ways that people try to fight the, the assurance battle a lot of times is just to think more about assurance and think more about God. But at least from what I can tell in this passage, Jesus reveals to them the fact that their names are written in heaven after they've taken steps of obedience. Not as if they've earned it, but as evidence of the fact that they've been faithful to what Jesus has told them to do. 
So many times for us, we hesitate to serve because our feelings haven't caught up yet. And Jesus says, your names are written in heaven after you've done the things that you've called, been called to do, which means we experience the assurance and the love and the joy of our Heavenly Father after we experience faithfulness, risk, upon what Jesus has called us to do. We're reminded, which it works like a flywheel. The longer I walk with Jesus, the more assured I am of his love. The, the consistent, willing, faithful, obedient steps I have, the more I get, cons get uh, confirmed in the fact that I'm his child. That's how it works in the Christian faith. So not only is there joy, but there's certainty and assurance that grows through our faithfulness to him. Number three, there's greater knowledge and intimacy with God. I guarantee if you risk yourself on being faithful to Jesus, you will learn things about God that you have not learned before. Amen? Old Christians, am I right? That there are going to be ways where God is going to meet you and show himself to be more faithful, more strong, more powerful, more uh, everything than you thought he was. And that revelation of Jesus that Jesus gives us here invites us into a greater experience of the love of our Heavenly Father. But finally, this text closes, and I want you to hear this because if you're in a spot of great personal suffering and difficulty right now, and you are holding fast to the truth of Jesus, and you are seeking to be faithful to him, to know him, and to be obedient to him, even though you're getting perhaps rejected, even though you've come to the end of your personal resources, even though you feel like a lamb among wolves, that Jesus calls you blessed. And when Jesus says that about you, it's more true than the things you feel. Crickets. Do you understand that? When Jesus says, you are acting and obeying and holding fast to my name, Jesus says, blessed are the eyes that these, of what these disciples see. You are blessed as you are willing to walk out your faith in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, this text uh, confronts us with big God theology. It confronts us with things that perhaps we haven't considered about right now in the struggles that we're facing in our Christian life. Father, I pray, I pray, I pray that in the hearts and minds of the people in this room that there would be a greater assurance and affirmation of your love for them. That no matter what failure they're facing, no matter what victory they're experiencing, that the stunning truth that our names are written in heaven would control and cause joy to erupt out of our hearts. What great news it is that we are loved by you. What great news and opportunity it is that we can serve in your name. That we can go out in the name of Jesus according to the requirements that you give to seek to be faithful to you, to, to love others, to share the gospel, to be used of you, and that we might see as this church Satan's kingdom fall. Would there be people who turn from darkness to light? Would we be used by you in our families, in our workplaces, to be lights in such a way that the gospel would go forth in faithfulness to your name? And would you bless your people as we go and seek to be faithful to you with greater knowledge of you, and greater blessing that comes as a result of being faithful to Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.